I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 85 on Fred Saberhagen's The Black Mountains. I am Jeff, and with me today is that demon lord, Hoy. (laughs) So tough and scary. (laughs) A wind from the east. (laughs) And today we are also joined by writer and game designer who um, just recently put together the Empire of the East campaign setting for Dungeon Crawl Classics and Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, who is also the writer for Night Shift, Veterans of the Supernatural Wars by Elflare Games, and Amazing Adventures by Troll Lord Games. Uh, We have with us today, Jason Vey. Hi, thanks for having me. Hey, Jason, it's great to have you on. Yeah, thanks for joining us on the show today. So, Jason, we're going to go ahead and get super cliche and ask you the question that all RPG podcasts feel like they have to ask their guests, which is, how did you get into gaming? I've actually been gaming since 1979. I was five years old, so people who can do arithmetic can figure out how old I am now. My uh, my parents used to drop us off at my grandma's for to be babysat every Thursday. They had a bowling league, and uh, my uncle and his high school buddies played AD&D in the basement, and I ended up sitting down there and learning to play uh, AD&D first edition as a five-year-old kid, and I've been gaming ever since. And how was their, what was their reaction to having this five-year-old at the table? <laughs> yeah, they were cool. You know yeah. what? The funny story is that year, decades later, um, you know, of course, I lost track of those guys, except for my uncle, obviously, but uh, <laughs> decades later, uh, it just so happened that I bumped into my very first dungeon master who ran the copy center at the at the, play, at the university where I worked. Oh, cool. So, yeah, we actually became friends then, like, 15 years later, 20 years. So, um, were you also sort of um, drawing, understanding the literary influences? I mean, obviously, you were five, so maybe, like, ten, five or ten years later on, were you, you know? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when I was five, it was like, they, they handed me a character sheet, told me when to roll dice, and I vaguely understood it was like... Hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I got into... Um, the the pulp fantasy you know years later actually with my dad uh, mm-hmm. got me into that i started with the ace paperbacks the conan series the ace mm-hmm. paperbacks and sure. i got sold right there and that was a lifelong love right there today i'm just a diehard robert e howard right and you've actually known for doing some pretty deep dives on the conan material on your website too at, at wasted lands right yeah yeah i yeah, mean yeah. there's plenty of people out there that know a lot more than me but yeah i'm, I'm kind of an amateur scholar some of howard's work mm-hmm. what is your favorite non-conan howard oh man that's a really good question um i love solomon kane mm-hmm. um i really like Cull. uh one of the lesser known ones though is he had a character called steve harrison who was an occult detective okay um cool. so it's like a hard-boiled noir combined with Lovecraftian horror smashed together. Uh, if anybody gets a chance to read Steve Harrison, I, I highly recommend um, mm-hmm. the The Robert E. Howard Press, I think for, I don't know if they still have it out. They might, but they had a, a hard 
cover of the Steve Harrison's case books, which is all of his Steve nice. Harrison stories. Really worth it. And what made you want to do, I think about 10 years back, you started doing a deep dive into sort of the white box D&D, right? And um, what made you, you know, take that on? I, I did. Um, again, I started with AD&D in 79 when it had first come out. And I really never got exposed much in the old days to OD&D, the, the brown box and white box. And then when the OSR came around, I got into that whole scene. Um, I stumbled onto the ODD 74 message boards. Uh, and that kind of got me into the white box. And from there, it was just I wanted to learn everything I could about that game, about the history of gaming, uh, you know, our, our hobby and where Gary and Dave came up with the ideas that they came up with. And that's pretty much it right there. I just kind of fell in love with the whole. Mm -hmm. Now, you were already designing at that point, right? And, and publishing yes. at that point. Yeah, yeah, okay. I was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, do you remember being aware that the Appendix N was a thing in the back of the DMG prior to this? Or was or was this kind of more of a, a discovery that happened when you got into the OSR and you were re-exploring this material? I was always vaguely aware that Appendix N was there, and I had explored some of it on my own without actually looking. To this day, I don't think I've ever really... Uh, and this might be blasphemy to say here, but I've never really opened up Appendix N and said, what's here that I haven't read yet? Mm. Um, every once in a while, I'll look at it and I'll be like, oh, yeah, I've read that. Oh, yeah. You know, it's 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 more that Appendix N and I have similar interests than me going to Appendix N to find something new to read, if that makes right, sense. Right. Was it news that Saberhagen was on Appendix N? No, Empire of the East was news to me because I was not familiar with this specific trilogy uh, mm. Actually, until I was hired to write this book, I, okay. I knew the books of swords. I had read those mm. as a kid. Uh, I never read the books of lost swords, but I read the original book of swords trilogy. Mm -hmm. um, and I read, um, I've read a lot of his Dracula novels, which right, right. which are awesome, and everybody mm -hmm. should read them. Yeah, we'll actually be covering some of those. I think the first two or three. I think yeah, we'll be doing the Dracula tape. And the Holmes Dracula file. Nice. Both those are good choices. Both yeah. are great. Both right, right. Are great. And how about the Berserker books? Did you read any of those? I've never uh, read any of the Berserker books. They are on my list, along with eight million other books that I have to get yeah, of course, to get sure. to. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I think we originally Jeff and I, when we originally started this, we thought, oh, it'll be like two, maybe four years. And now we're looking at it and we're like, oh, I think twelve years I yeah. think, in total. <laughs> yeah, because we we um our list is two hundred and ninety books long. And as I mentioned, this is episode eighty something. <laughs> and because I'm OCD and the way that I am OCD, um I have a spreadsheet for how many pages each of these books are, how many um pages I want to read per day. And based on that, I have our recording and release schedule set all the way through book 290. Nice. <laughs> Obviously, we have to move things occasionally if that date that I set 12 years in advance doesn't work for a guest. But um, <laughs> but right now, we will be um, finishing, we'll be recording episode 290 on October 15th, 2028. Right. And it will release on November 6th, 2028. Right. I wish well, you all the best in, in reaching that milestone. Right. Well, this is our way of holding back the apocalypse for another eight years. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> We're three years in and we have another eight to go. There you go. So the next thing we want to do here is chat about which edition of the book we're working with. So Jason, talk to us about your edition. Uh, I'm working off of the Omnibus edition right now. And actually it's on my, uh, I have a hard copy, but I'm looking at the copy on my Nook right mm -hmm. now. So so the um, Empire of the East Omnibus. Yeah, the Empire of the East Omnibus. Got it. Edition. So. All right. How about you, Hoy? 
I am reading the Ace paperback. Yes. Uh, nice. The, uh, pretty funky cover. And um, actually, would be interested. Uh, Jason, have you read the individual volumes separate from Empire of the East? I haven't. I have only read the... the yeah, I would be interested to do a comparative reading at some point yeah. and see I what changes. That, I understand that there are a few changes. I don't know exactly yeah. what they are, and I think they're relatively minor. But mm-hmm. They are, because actually, one thing that I do... Because like I've got so much reading that I need to do for school stuff as well. Sometimes it's hard for me to really give the proper focus to these books that I need. So I will actually either listen to audiobooks or do like a speech to text. No, do a text to speech um, program while I read along just to kind of keep me like going. Because otherwise right. I just like space off or I'll fall asleep. Right. Like a metronome. But, Exactly. But the the text file that I have for this is the Empire of the East trilogy, uh, Omnibus, but the book I have is not. So I was actually seeing the differences as 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 I went along. They're very minor. It's mm-hmm. like they delete a sentence, they combine two sentences, they change this word to that word. Very minimal changes. So it's mm-hmm. basically like he polished it up a little bit for the Omnibus? Right, yeah, right. at okay. least with the second book. I can't speak for the first or third, but that mm-hmm. was my experience reading the the second book. There were no mm-hmm. major changes. Well, you know, that's interesting because uh, when I was on Spellburn a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how you can tell in these books when you read them that these are some of Saberhagen's earlier works. He hadn't really quite honed his craft as a writer yet. They're still mm-hmm. really fun reads and they're still very well written but you can see that it's an early Saberhagen as opposed to what he would achieve later on with like the books of swords and things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to hear that, that he actually went back and polished up his original work a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And not significantly, but, but definitely there's some polishing. Mm-hmm. So Hoy on your cover, we've got the big battle of the, of the, what right. is this? This is the yeah, demon is... Lord Zapranoff and the and beast Lord Drafit. Indeed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Drafit looks kind of like an owl bear. Yeah, I'm not here. crazy the way Drafit looks there because yeah. he's yeah, yeah. he's Which a mutant is, uh, dog. Right. I didn't. It wasn't clear to me that he was a dog until I read it in your PDF. So it was, I knew he's a beast, but it's like you know. Yeah, you have to go back. If you go back and reread his own description of himself and what he did before the war, uh-huh. that's where that's it really right. comes across that he was a he loved he right. was a four legged creature who loved right. you know men right. above all else and right. Drafit was a good boy. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> The one I have is kind of a um, an interesting version. I've got the 1973 British paperback from Universal Tandem, and it's got an uncredited artist on the cover. Uh, but we've got this really interesting kind of masked figure standing in front of the Black Mountains. Yeah, that's really bizarre. Kind of cool and moody. He looks right, like right. A, he looks like the villain from Phantom of the Paradise on there. He does. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, <laughs> he, does. he does. I he am does. so glad that you know that reference. That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's funny how you can tell the Brit art. The Brit art always has that sort of. Um, sometimes it's cruder, but it still has a weird sheen to it. That's a little different than the American art at the same time period. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good observation. All right, so moving on to our Hygaxian word of the day. Obeisance. Obeisance. So obeisance is on page 95 um, of my edition. When still at a humble distance, she stopped and made obeisance deeply with all the grace at her command. And obeisance means differential respect. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. It's a good one. So Jason, tell us, what did you think about the Black Mountains? Uh, I think the Black Mountains is probably the highlight of the trilogy. I mean, it's a little strange 
talking about it here without the context of the first one involved. But I kind of feel the same way about Lord of the Rings, really, too. I feel like The Two Towers is the best book of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is really the same. It's got the same idea. It's it's really the the big action-packed middle chapter, right. you know? Dan Bishop agrees with you, by the way, about Two Towers as, yeah. the, as the high point. And this is also kind of like uh, Empires. The tr- and I was going to say that some a guy in the book club gave me side eye when I mentioned that I felt like this resembled Empire. Um, Empire, Empire Strikes, Strikes Back. Back a little bit. You know? And the side eye came from the fact that this predates Star Wars. Right, right. 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 Well, I was saying, well, I was wondering if it was an influence on Star Wars, not that it was influenced by Star Wars. Although but... Empire Strikes Back ends on a real down note. And uh, this right. this book absolutely does not end on a down note. Uh, except for the one person who has the last line has a, is a, is bummed out a little bit, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> the book really ends on a hopeful note, though. Right, right. Now, in this book, like um, the Two Towers, the camera kind of follows two different main groups of people. We're with Rolf as he's hanging out with the technology gin, and then we're hanging out with Chup and having all of his misadventures. How do you feel the quality and entertainment level of those two pieces compare to one another? It's interesting because they're really different, like really different, but they're both interesting in their own ways. I mean, you're invested in Rolf from knowing him from the first book. You're interested in seeing where he goes. So you get to see him become more experienced, uh, come into his own a little bit in this. But you do, I have to admit, kind of find yourself looking forward to Chup's sections of the book as you're reading it, I think. Um, because he, he's the one, even though this is Rolf's story, Chup is the one that really has the, the coolest character arc, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's nothing, it's nothing unique or original. I mean, you know, I, are we, are we allowed to discuss spoilers here? Is oh, that, yeah, okay. absolutely. oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's, he's basically your reformed bad guy and his story is the, is the path from being, you know, an, an evil bastard in the first one to being kind of a hero by the end of the series. So this book is really where you see him make that twist. And it's interesting because he doesn't make the twist out of really a sense of righteousness or a sense of, you know, it's not really out of a sense of the empire, the Easter evil, and I need to learn to fight against them. It's more like, I don't want to sell my soul to these guys. I'm my own man and screw them for wanting me to, to sell out to them, I'm going to go with the guys that are going to let me be my own man. Right, right. So, he has a certain self-image that yeah, he has to maintain. It is. He he has almost like a Conan quality a little bit by the end of this book. Mm-hmm. He might be like a lawful neutral torn between chaotic good and lawful evil. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I... I I definitely experienced what you were saying where during the Rolf sections, I was kind of looking forward to getting back to the Chup sections. Right. Like, sure, some of the technology gen stuff was very fun and very entertaining. Um, but Rolf himself, there wasn't a whole lot of meat to him in this story. And there was a lot of meat to Charmian and Chup and like all of the stuff that was happening I think over it's, in I think it's that part Charmaine. of the story. Charmaine. I think it's yeah. Charmaine, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, Jason, you uh, you just uh, made me twig another uh, filmic reference, which is funny. Um, it made me think of um, who's the guy who plays the bad in the Good, the Bad, the Egg? Lee Van Cleef. Oh yeah. Chup. I could picture uh, Lee Van Cleef playing Chup. I could see and, that. Yeah. And uh, certainly Lee Van Cleef, as in um, for a few dollars, um, 
for a few dollars more, right? Because he's in there, he's sort of the, the point of view character for, in the second of the Clint Eastwood sort of, um, you know, spaghetti westerns. Yeah, yeah. And so he's got that sort of anti-hero, but he's kind of got the sort of self-image. He's, he's sort of complete in himself, and the Empire of the East is trying to break that down, right? And it's, it's him knowing that he's going to lose some portion of his identity by swearing to them in order to gain the power that is like that's the deal breaker right, right and, and it's when when they have him drag charmaine into the pits to throw her to zaffronoth and and yeah. he just has this moment where he's like wait a second my entire life i've been doing what other people told me to do and i'm sick of it i'm just sick of right. it I'm, I'm gonna go do my own thing i'm taking this woman out of here right. and you know it's it's a really cool moment uh because it's it's kind of and again, we talked about how it's not really original, the idea of the reformed villain, but the way he comes about it is unique. He doesn't mm-hmm. have like a moral moment of clarity. It's totally selfish, the reason he does it. Right. You know? Yeah, he doesn't have any illusions about anything, really. Right. Right. He's a, I'm a fighter. I'm a, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a soldier. I'm a warrior. I'm a fighter. But it's about time I just made my own way. And similarly, he's not the only one who decides to kind of do things his own way while in the um, pit of Zapranoff. Uh, we also discover that that was also, and I'm going to say Charmian just because it's I-A-N in the book, not A-I-N, and I just feel like I want to stick with Charmian. Um, is it really? Have I been, it really have I been is. reading it wrong this whole time? <laughs> it's It does... The, I, I, I'm a big believer that when it comes to fictitious characters' names, there is no right or wrong. It's the name that exists in your head. Um, but it is certainly C-H-A-R-M-I-A-N. My book keeps kicking me out. Um, <laughs> well, like, I can promise you that oh, when, you, when you corrected you are, me, I double-checked. You are absolutely correct. No, I just I had to look it up just for my own peace of mind. You were absolutely correct. Yeah, it is Charmian. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. You say it the way you want to say it. But um, but also Charmian has a, has a similar arc where she goes down to those pits and she's like, you know what? I am not going to uh, <laughs> to let this to let these people tell me how, how I'm going to live my life down here. I'm going to instead sacrifice my sister in GTFO. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I dug. She's a fun. Yeah, character. That, yeah, yeah, that's all oh, she she is. She's kind of that character that you love to hate. She's just mm. awful from start to finish. Right. And even by the end of the trilogy, she's the one character who is still just awful. <laughs> you know, like there's there's nothing redeeming about her whatsoever. I mean, she's the ultimate survivor though, at least so far. She is very so much. The, yeah, and I think she yeah. I think she even says that about herself at one point in time. Right. Or some some might tell, yeah. might say that. Somebody right. somebody says that about her at some point right. in time, yeah. Cuz she doesn't actually have any special powers unlike all these other, you know, people surrounding her right, right. You well know, she I mean, has that she has a chance but, yeah she has know. that weird like magical charm yeah about and magical her. hair yeah. right which is which but is where not... the charm comes from her her magic right hair, right yeah. and that's that's the charm in charmian <laughs> 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 yeah but I, I thought the characterization was terrific she's like a real film noir femme fatale yeah. um, very much so yeah yeah, yeah i never yeah. thought of her that way but that's a really good description yeah mm-hmm. yeah very much that dark lady that we've seen a lot of a lot of these kind of like pulp era i guess this is like early 70s but like certainly the 30s and 70s we see a lot of these kinds of female characters in our pulp stories this one may have been late 60s may have been uh, no this was 71, 71 was pub- this was 71 yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah the first one i think was like 68 
And this is interesting because each of the books was published by a different pub. Oh, no, I think the first two were Ace and the last one was Daw. Well, until they be and, put and together there's actually in, a fourth one. Right, Arden is, uh, Arden is Sword, I think uh, it is. Uh, sword, yeah, right. which I haven't, I haven't actually read the fourth one. Right, and I think that was much after the fact. Yeah, it takes right? like place like a or thousand years later or something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like... And that's the bridge to the uh, Swords trilogy yeah, later on? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have to go, I guess it's more for the design side, but did you have to go look at the Swords trilogy also for, for your design process for this, this No, book I actually or? was not allowed to use the Swords mm-hmm. trilogy. We, we expressly did not have the license to touch the books of Swords. Mm-hmm. It had to be just these three books. And we actually, mm-hmm. we didn't even have the license to do the Arden as Sword, the fourth volume. It was just the first. Interesting. Okay. Well, we'll see. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the, once the uh, book is in wide release, what kind of general reaction we'll get and whether that, you know, brings forth, uh, you know, more demand for, you know, Saberhagen-ness. You know, yeah, I, I mean, you know. I'm hoping people really like it. I know the Saberhagen estate was pleased with it. So uh, that made me right. feel good that we got it right on some level. Mm-hmm. Now, did you guys send it to them as a courtesy or was that like one of the agreements that they had to kind of approve of it before? I honestly don't know. I just heard from Joe that he had sent it to them and that they gave it their stamp of approval. And they had a few notes, you know, there were some very minor things that, that I had misinterpreted that we had to fix. I don't remember even specifically what they were. One of mm-hmm. them, I think I spelled gray wrong. Oh, <laughs> in, in the book. I used right, a G right. instead of, or an E instead of an A or vice versa. A, yeah. All right. Right. And for those listening, when Jason Bay says Joe, he means Joseph Goodman from Goodman games. Yeah. Just so that we're not being too in, inside baseball. Sorry. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, no, it's fine. I just, <laughs> um, so, we also have all these other really great characters in here. We've got Som the Dead and Tarlanot and like all these like all these like crazy wizards. I'm curious, was there like a character who really spoke to you more than any of the others? Well, it was Chop. I mean, Chop was the character yeah. that really that I was with the whole time. But Som the Dead, I think, is a really awesome bad guy. Yeah. I mean, he's he's a very, <laughs> he's very a total bastard. He is, too. He's, a, he's a very cool villain. Like he's right. kind of in a lot of ways the archetype for your D and D lich, except Right. Yeah. Except that he's not really a wizard unto himself. Uh, at least you don't really get that impression that he's a big spellcaster. But but he's definitely got that whole like out of the corner of your eye. When you see him out of the corner of your eye, it's just a skull, you know. Right. And he smells mm-hmm. like death. And uh, right. that enchantment that he has on him, uh, which is actually a lot like the fifth edition hellish rebuke spell. <laughs> Anytime anybody hits him. The weapon, the, the wound rebounds over. on them instead. Right. Yeah. And he has that he has that great scene when he's interrogating Charmian and he pretend he's playing all like dumb and he doesn't know what's like he doesn't know what's going on. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> he's, but he knows the whole time. He's such a bad Yeah, and he's, he's like, like and he's like, Oh yeah, now that you're gonna be my wife, you have to become like me. And she's like, What yes, I wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> and she's playing along and he knows that she's playing yeah. along, yeah. but he's just like doing it to like <laughs> <laughs> to fuck with her right and even tarl not i mean he's a great mo- little minor character but he, you know he's he's total you know yeah <laughs> sob that's what's great all the uh if you were going to do a lawful evil game this would be like the great basis for a lawful evil. it's game. true it's true right? and you- by the same token though it's a great example of how like as soon as they start introducing characters from the east you know that this whole society you're like how is this society held together this long to begin with because all it is is people stabbing each other in the back their whole society is built on betrayal and stabbing each other in the back right how did they last as long as they did you know well you know the byzantine empire lasted for over a thousand years (laughs) fair (laughs) (laughs) um, so 
Did you feel, uh, I mean, you're uh, a child of the 70s. Did you f- pick up a lot of those? Uh, did it give you those resonances of like the Cold War era and all that stuff like that? Because this is really I mean, you know, a product of that I time. I think of myself more as a child of the 80s because I was five in 79. So the, mm-hmm. the early 80s was really where I came of age. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely, a the, the book is definitely a product of his time. I think the, the Empire of the East is definitely designed to be you know, the, the Soviet era East. That's what they're talking about when they say the East. It's not the Far East, mm-hmm. it's the Soviet Union East. Um, right. and, the, and the West is definitely supposed to be um, the United States and Great Britain. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I think that really does come across, but it, it's not surprising for its era. I mean, if you look at any of the TV literature movies, look at sure. the original Star Trek. The Klingons were the Russians. I mean... Right, right. You know. <laughs> yes. So, with a little minor twist being that some of the people in the east are like you know living in swamps and you know and sort of they so they could almost be even though they're the sort of liberal democratic they, they could also be the Viet Cong right because they're you know fighting out of the swamps and you know fighting at night. Yeah, I mean, and, I think he was he was playing with the geography a little bit, and it, yeah, yeah, I guess that would make sense because that was in the middle of the Vietnam War. So, right. yeah, I, that would make sense. Um, right, the values aren't there, but there's a there's a way to sort of he's 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 sophisticated enough that it's not a one to one correlation right. of you know this is this and this right. is this. He does right. it properly it's, instead of instead yeah. of just like diving into stereotypes. He just takes the theme, the overarching theme, and brings that into a, a post apocalyptic fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I would like to give Saber Hagen credit for is you know Elspreg de Camp has his unbeheaded king trilogy. Um, and I love that we have a character here who is far more unbeheaded than anybody in that Elspreg de Camp uh, trilogy. This person actually is beheaded yes. and then is unbeheaded. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> unbeheaded is not an adjective in this case; it is a verb. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the that's probably one of the craziest and most bizarre moments in the book. You know, like Chop is like, I, I Drawfoot wants to see me. Well, there's only one way to get there. Uh, you know, Charmian, here's my sword. Cut my head off. <laughs> and you're reading it. You're like, what? And, yeah. And, and he's like, he's like, you should cut your head off. She's like, no, the Valkyries won't accept any women. Right. <laughs> and he's like, okay, fine. I'll do it. Right, right. And, I mean, he that's such an amazing scene. And he has the single best line of the book, too. It's, lady, I would not trust you with my own beheading. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then it's a very existential moment because he's staring there at the cliff wall and he's deciding whether or not he wants to close his eyes when he knows that this blow is going to come. Right. Yep. You know, and she's so. like, she's like, you know, well, they don't. Like, if they don't get you there quick enough, he won't be able to bring you back to life. He's like, look, he called me. He wants me there. It's all good. Just cut my head. I'm like, you're casually talking about lopping your head off. Yep. And it's not one clean blow we're talking about either. Like, she had to, like, hack and hack and hack at that next stump with the sword to get it to work. (laughs) Yeah, both that and the the return of his head were pretty visceral and... Very cool. Oh yeah, Drop is holding his head and turning it around, and he's like, "There's a my head's being held." Like, <laughs> like <laughs> and you get that one scene where Drawfit like turns the head up and he's looking into his face, and you just have this idea that right. this big hairy paw is holding his head and yeah. looking at him. All right. This would be like a very um, if this was a movie, this would be a scene for like Tim Burton to do. I think. Ma- yeah. Right. <laughs> or Sam Raimi. Yes. Yep. Sam Raimi would oh, be good even better. Yeah. Yep. yep. Because yeah. honestly, like, I can't think of any good Tim Burton adaptations. Right. I was going to say recently, but really probably just ever. If you look well, at, I thought the, uh, 
Sleepy Hollow was good. That's oh yeah, Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Yeah, if you yeah. and if you look at his earlier yeah. work, Peter Jackson. Sure, sure. Like reanim, um, not reanimators, the Frighteners. Frighteners right, or like uh, Dead Alive. Yeah. Dead Alive. Dead Alive. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, but Sam Raimi would definitely have the right level of both comedy and and uh, yeah. grit to yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that is definitely completely wild, and I think we could do with a bit of that in our um, you know our sort of modern gaming. I think now things are sort of very codified mm-hmm. and, and you, yeah, I don't can't imagine a character volunteering to, like a player character volunteering to have their head cut yeah, off. It, it has, yeah, it has, <laughs> it's like that old story about the head of Vec. Yeah. <laughs> now before we dive too deep into kind of your take on the Empire of the East trilogy for Dungeon Crawl Classics and 5e, I would love to start with asking you how you think the Empire of the East and maybe even specifically the Black Mountains inspired Gary Gygax and the creation of early fantasy fiction. Um, there's one thing in there that I keep coming back to, and uh, I said this in, in Spellburn too. Um, we had a debate about this on the ODD 74 boards. In in everybody knows in D and D, wizards can't wear armor, and there's been debates about why for decades. You know, does it interfere with their movement? Is it because the metal interferes with the magic? Is it? I think this book is the origin of why wizards don't wear armor in D&D and why they don't use swords. In Because if you look at other wizard archetypes, if you look at Vance, at Jack Vance, his wizards use swords. If you look at Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings, Gandalf wields a sword. But right. in, Elric wears armor. And I think Elric has a sword too. Uh, it's just minor detail. Minor <laughs> detail. Minor. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> but in, in Empire of the East, there's there's a hard rule that Wizards cannot cast spells when there's swords drawn in anger or in, in with, with violent intent. Like in the middle of a battle, mm-hmm. really all wizards can do is engage in psychic combat with each other. They can't cast spells. Right. So I, I right. think that's really the origin. I don't know that that's the justification that's there in D&D, but I think that's where the idea originally came from. Yeah, and actually, I can I, I, I don't know if this is the sentence you're referring to, but here is a sentence that highlights what you're saying. And it says, the wizard Han um, hauled out a... Sh- well, actually, it says the wizard pulled out a short sword. But uh, the wizard Han hauled out a short sword from under his cloak. Most magic was unreliable when violence was at hand. Yeah. So here right, we right. are saying that violence is unreliable. Although it's also saying that the wizard has a sword. It does. <laughs> right. It does, yeah. Well, he, yeah. he can't do both. It's like one or the other. It's like that weird thing in OD&D where an elf is either a magic user or a fighter, but not both yeah. at the same right. time. Right, right. <laughs> um, but I think this also... Uh, I think the the influence on Metamorphosis Alpha and uh, Gamma World is very sure. clear in Empire of the East. I really think this mm-hmm. is this is where you see the origins of that that sort of post apocalyptic world. Maybe not Metamorphosis Alpha as much because that's a like a colony ship in outer space, but but Gamma World definitely where you have this great apocalyptic war that went on and it created mutant animals and it left all this technology behind for people to find and figure out how to use and that's empire of the east i mean it's gamma world and it's thundar the barbarian that's Mm -hmm. right well even greyhawk is actually strongly implied to be post-apocalyptic setting once you sort of look at the various components of it right like you know expedition to the barrier peaks and all that stuff like that there's leftover extrusions of technology there's definitely that gonzo type you yeah. know, and, and you were talking about how that's something that's missing in modern gaming. And I totally agree with that. Like our modern gaming 
and I'm sure everybody's gaming group has their own um, spin that they put a unique spin that's unique to them. But overall, if you look at D and D, even since second edition and on, it's Tolkien. It's it's like yeah. it's Tolkien with Vancey and magic, mm-hmm. and it's kind of lost that element of the Gonzo, the over the top, the anything goes that you had in the early days of gaming. And I think that's something that a lot of groups could do with bringing back a little bit mm-hmm. to their game. So I'm, I'm hoping on one hand that this book finds that audience and makes them see that there's more we can do than just your traditional stereotypical epic fantasy world. Right, right. And obviously DCC was predicated on this whole premise of, of bringing back bringing back the weird. Right, sure, sure. Right. Um, Although before we move into DCC stuff, though, one thing, one more thing I would like to bring up, though, um, from um, Empire of the East and Advanced Dungeons and Dragons is when I look at the way that the djinn, the elementals, and the demons are presented in this story, it feels very monster manual, especially mm-hmm. the djinn. But really, all three of them feel really similar to the way that djinn, elementals, and demons are presented in AD&D. In some ways, yeah. I think the demons, especially though in, in Empire of the East, are pretty unique. And I really dig the way that they're presented where like, they, they can take different forms. They can, they can um, become like this normal, albeit gigantic human. And, you know, Zapranoth, you know, becomes this normal gigantic humanoid figure in armor with a big sword. But then he's just this huge roiling cloud of black smoke that rolls in over the battlefield and drives everybody mad just to see it, you know? Right. They can become almost conceptual, uh, right? Yeah, in a way yeah. that... Um, and the idea that they're... Um, and the book doesn't... It really doesn't really get into this, I don't think, until the third book. I think it hints at it before it. But the idea that these are creatures that are made of radiation, okay, you know, mm. which is which is just a really cool concept, you know. And also in um, in response to like, um, I guess not in response to anything. Um, also, when we're looking at the demons in uh, the Saberhagen books, uh, specifically, you know, they've got uh, like um, what's his name, Zapranov has yeah. his horcrux in what's her face yeah. in Lisa's hair. Um, right. But like one thing that Lucio, one of our patrons who was at our patron book club sent us um, is like right here in the monster manual, there's a whole section on demons amulets. Yep. And the first, the first sentence is demon Lords and princes maintain their vital essences in small containers, their souls, so to speak, are thus at once protected and yet vulnerable if some enterprising character should gain the amulet. Now, Gary, of course, gamifies it specifically into an amulet, but here we are with that ex- that idea of like the soul that exists outside of the demon that you can gain possession of and possibly destroy. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's you know, and then going back to the lich idea too. It's like a lich's a lich's right, yeah. Um and you kind of right. wonder where I'm not really familiar with the origin of liches if they were existed in mythology before. D&D. They did not. Um, funnily enough, the Lich comes from Kothar, Barbarian Swordsman. Okay. Um, yeah. And it is a undead thousands-year-old uh, warrior wizard who is in um, like kind of skeletal zombie form who appears right. before Kothar and kind of becomes right. his patron. 
Right. And I would say there was some precedence for the lich in Clark Ash and Smith's work also. True. Although yeah. literally the word lich, the word lich which just yeah, associated means with a, corpse, is used right. to describe this ancient undead warrior wizard. Magic. That's yeah. interesting considering how it's really worked its way into culture to the point where a lot of people would think that it's part of – like I don't know if either of you guys ever watched the show Lost Girl when it was on. But in one of the episodes of Lost Girl, the monster is a lich, although they pronounce it lick. Okay. <laughs> and it took me half the episode to realize what they were saying. And I was like, that's just a really unfortunate pro- uh, pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like when I was reading the um, Song of Ice and Fire books by George R. R. Martin, the... I was listening to the audiobooks at one point, and the guy who reads the audiobooks has this like amazing voice, but he kept pronouncing Lichen as Licken. Yeah. And I was like, <sighs> yeah, that was, that was throwing right. me off. So, but sorry, sorry, um, Hoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't know. It's, so here's the one quick sort of, um, you, know, we, you know, this wouldn't be a project if we weren't getting into minutiae, but the first two books are not cited in Appendix N. It's only the third book, right, Jeff? Correct. Uh, so do you think that was just an oversight? On their part, they're like, okay, they're putting a list together. Oh, what, what's that one? We like the Saberhagen. Oh, uh, Changing Earth, right? And we just didn't list the first two books because these this the second book is so clearly D and D in a lot of ways, right? It's funny that it's not it cited. Is, as a it source. is funny that it's not cited. I would have thought that they would have just cited the trilogy, but yeah, um, yeah. It says um, Saberhagen, comma Fred colon Changing Earth semicolon at all. At right. all. Okay. So it says read all of his stuff, but especially read Changeling Earth. Yeah. Right. I mean, the only other thing I can think of is because of the weird publishing history of this trilogy where the first two books were published by Ace and only the third book was published by Daw, and maybe only the third book was commonly available at that time. Because Empire of the East, I don't think, came out until 79 after AD&D had already been released. You know, the actual yeah, one volume. Uh, and I was just checking to see if that might have been a, um, to see if that might have been like a colloquial name for the whole series but it doesn't look like it was no so so it's one of those mysteries so i just because it, it's, it's so it's so clear that black mountains is you know everything we just talked about that's that's there in right D&D, yeah right. so so now taking this to where i apologize i think hoy was trying to take us and then i i i, I pull this back no no it's, it's fine but uh taking us over to your take on Saberhagen, i would love to know like as you were going through these books is there anything um, not is there anything, what specifically were you taking and trying to gamify that you don't already see in 5e and DCC? I mean, my my I think my biggest uh, takeaway was the magic system, um, the way magic mm-hmm. works. Because um, a lot of it, a lot of Empire of the East really just seamlessly fits into just about any fantasy game you want. Fighters are fighters. You know what I mean? Whatever game you play, a fighter is a fighter. Clerics are clerics. There's no clerics in Empire of the East. Because <laughs> <laughs> there See, were Jeff, no gods. No, that's right. Right. Um, <laughs> Jeff, you found your yes. setting. You can play this. <laughs> which, which comes down to the, to, to the idea that in the Empire of the East, the DCC source book, there, there aren't any patrons. You do have in the books, you have Orcus and Ardna as patrons, but they're different than your usual DCC patrons. Orcus is a little more like a like a normal, uh, you know, or de- uh, regular demons can be a little bit more like a normal DCC patron where you can seek them out and make a deal with them. But like Ardna expressly picks you and there's like an avatar of Ardna walking around. So yeah. hmm. it's not like Shilba and Ningobble who are hanging out in their hut or their cave and you can find them out and maybe right. strike a deal with right. them. So we, we basically removed patrons from the magic system for uh, Empire of the East, which doesn't change much, except that there's not a patron column in your 
spell tables. Mm. We had to uh, alter the kinds of spells that you have. Like you're not throwing around magic missile. You're not throwing around lightning bolt. You're not throwing around fireball because whenever you're in a situation where you would use those, people have weapons drawn and they're fighting. So your magic doesn't work. Unrelated. Yeah. Right. Did you, um, so you wrote two DCC as the first, as your process initially. Well, for actually, initially I wrote the 5e book. That's what I was, I oh, okay. was hired to write the 5e book. Uh, I wasn't originally hired to write the DCC book. Um, so okay. we did the fifth edition book. Um, and, uh, but it was a similar process. Um, we were, we were looking to see how do these books translate to the system. Now I have mm. kind of a guiding principle as a game designer. I don't, I don't reinvent the wheel where I don't have to. If I can fit it mm. reasonably into the system as it sits without needing to invent a brand new subsystem, that's ideal. Um, so it, it started that way. It started with like how, you know, how does this, this, the, how do these books translate into fifth edition more than how does fifth mm-hmm. edition shoehorn into these books, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so specifically, what did you do to make the magic different and unique? Um, I, I don't remember much about the fifth edition one because it's been, it's been a number of years <laughs> since, since I actually wrote it. Um, these were completed several years ago and then they went through as Goodman's games stuff does they went through rounds and rounds of editing and revising and um things like that i would have to dig through my manuscript i'm sorry i don't i don't i really don't remember no it's fine but but the so the dcc one uh came about where um they contacted me and for whatever reason the person who was originally contracted to do the dcc one wasn't able to finish the book i don't know who it was i don't know what the situation was but for whatever reason they weren't able to finish the book. Um, so I took it on and we basically started from scratch. We, we started with all of the fluff from the fifth edition manuscript because it was done and ready to go and then went into the rules. Um, and it was a challenge because not only did I have to, like had I had to read through the whole trilogy of, of Empire of the East, um, I wasn't an expert with DCC at the time. I had played it a couple times, but I certainly was not a guru at the system. So I, I had to sit down and read the book cover to cover, you know, more than mm-hmm. once just to get a real feel for how everything worked. Um, but thankfully, if you skip the spells, reading it cover to cover isn't too, too glorious. Right. right. <laughs> um, right. Since that's probably about 300 of the 350 pages. Now, unfor- <laughs> unfortunately, the magic was the, um, was the important part, but Fair. what we did, yeah. uh, a lot of what we did in DCC, even where we had to create new, approaches like um we have uh spell innervation instead of corruption in this um but we kept spell innervation with a really simple system that just works seamlessly with the way everything else works in dcc and that replaces corruption and that misfires, replaces correct? corruption and misfires yeah and then psychic combat uh psychic combat replaces spell duels um, okay. And basically, mm-hmm. Psychic Combat, the way it works is just a very simplified version of Spell Duels. It works in a similar way, but you're dealing direct damage to each other instead of throwing spells at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it seems to me that you're writing to the system, right, each time. Um, so I, I think uh, Amazing Adventures, Are you do, did you do the 5th edition um, Amazing I Adventures did. as well? As, 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 yeah. as, uh, and there's the Siege Engine, which yes. is the original yes. system, right? The, so 
with Amazing Adventures, did you also then just take the fluff and then write directly to 5th edition? Or did you look at the Siege Engine well, material, the actual mechanics there, and try to port Amazing Adventures over? is mine from top to bottom. So mm-hmm. it's, not really, it's not really the same process. Um, I did have to completely redesign Amazing Adventures from the ground up because while the Siege Engine and 5th edition look and play similarly on the surface, the underlying design assumptions are couldn't be. So I, mm. I had to rebuild Amazing Adventures from the ground up to do a 5th edition right. version. DCC, right. um, and again, I don't want to say that I necessarily that I write to the system first because you don't want to do that at the expense of the flavor of the license. You know, you need to sure. get the genre right. emulation in there. So it's, it's a balancing act. Um, and I, I couldn't even begin to tell you what my method is, or even if I have one, it's, it's intuitive and instinctive as much as anything. I tinker, I experiment, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I look, I look till I get to the point where I'm like, okay, this works really well with DCC. And yes, it absolutely feels like Saberhagen's world. So it's right. a back and forth I- balancing act. Right. I was uh, interested in this whole process because I'm not going to name any uh, specific uh, publications or publishers, but you can tell certain times when they have material and they repurpose it for different systems that they're just doing sort of the game system conversion. And so then you can say like, oh, I can tell this is um, OSR or 5e, but it was originally written for Pathfinder because it's got some Pathfinderisms right. in there right, or, right. you know, or vice versa. Um, whereas I feel like the... Um, what you're attempting to do is make this thing seamless, whole cloth, right? The the five E version of uh, Empire of the East is going to be Empire of the East and five E, and DCC Empire of the East is DCC and Empire of the East. Like trying to get those as I seamless so. as possible. Yeah, I mean right. that's the goal. Yeah, um, like you, yeah. I've seen uh, and I've seen the other way too. Uh, there's again, I don't want to name yeah. any specific publications, but um, there's. There's some licenses out there right now that really just feels like somebody wanted a vehicle to ramrod their house system down everybody's throat, and they thought having a big license was the way to do it. And you can tell that their game system comes before the license, mm-hmm. and it loses right. something. Yeah, you know. And so you, you really have to have that balance. You want it to play and feel like DCC, because if a DCC fan picks this up and there's too much of a learning curve, they're going to toss it aside. They want to pick up a DCC right. source. I will say, though, my favorite thing about these licensed source books, though, is they're keeping these like little rules tweaks. And with all of these like little rules tweaks we keep having, we keep getting closer and closer to the kind of appendix and gaming I'm really looking for. And like with the Lankmar box set, like I love that. Um, um, I, well, first off, I love Fleeting Luck. I love yeah. luck as a way of healing. I also love getting rid of clerics, which you also do. And I specifically love, although I'm forgetting what it's called, um, Hoy, what did they replace manifestations with? Um, it was, um, what was it called? It was, jeez. Uh, um, that thing. I love that <laughs> That thing. thing for the Lankmar flavor. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now also with um, with the Saberhagen stuff, I love that you have replaced um, corruption and misfires with this enervation. I feel like that's not only present in Saberhagen. I feel like all throughout the appendix end, we constantly see um, wizards and sorcerers who are becoming exhausted by the magic that they're casting. Right. Elric, Elric for sure. Absolutely, yeah. and it just like leaves them this like exhausted, exhausted puddle of a human being. But also, one thing that you haven't mentioned yet is that also 
your spells take turns, not rounds, to cast, which also feels very Appendix N. And for our listeners who aren't super old school, a turn is 10 minutes, where a round is just like 6 to 10 seconds, depending on the system. Right, right, because magic in Empire of the East tends to be much more ritualistic. I was also interested in um, how you wrote up some of the characters, because... You know, the tendency would always be like make them, you know, the hero max level for whatever is the system. And here you have literally the zero level scrub version of Rolf as a as a I possibility. I have always hated the fact that people do that in games. We're like, we're going to stat up Conan. Yeah. He's a twentieth yeah. level barbarian. No, he's not. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's not. The only the only character like the only fictional characters I could reasonably see making like ridiculously high level like that is Doc Savage who is just the perfect yeah. polymath of a man and su- and and <laughs> superman you know yeah right other care most other care i mean of course you're going to get into then you're going to get into people go what about wonder woman and what about yeah these yeah, sure. these cosmic level characters yes but for the most part your fantasy heroes even aragorn from lord of the rings he's maybe eighth or ninth level i think by the end of yeah, that book right. you know well, wasn't there right. that Dragon Magazine article about how Gandalf is just a fifth level wizard? Yeah, or that one I'm kind of dismissive of yeah. because Gandalf is literally an angel. <laughs> right. 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 Well, in but, fairness, that was probably written prior to the Cimmerillion yeah. being published, which was published in 79. So that's Could before be, yeah. the world yeah. maybe knew that Gandalf is technically an yeah. angel. Right. One thing I would love to ask you, though, um, because when we had you on Spellburn, I hadn't yet read this. Um, and now that I've read this, I see that there is not only lots of healing magic in here, we also have healing misfires and healing going horribly wrong. And I'm curious if either of those two have made it into this, the DCC. Well, the, the Valkyrie uh, devices and the, the pool of healing are in the source book. And are, is there like a table you can roll on of things that can go horribly uh, wrong? I don't know if we had a, a technology misfire table or not. Um, I, I would. I, I would just hope love that the scene did. where all the people are standing around looking at all of the things that went horribly wrong from their healings in the, the 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 vat of healing or whatever it's called, the lake of life. Yeah, the lake of life. Yeah, I, I would hope that we had a technology misfire table. Um, if we didn't, that might be a uh, an oversight on our part. Um, <laughs> I mean, to be fair, even in DCC, if you do go to zero, you can always say that they have a horrible scar and, you know, they lose some con anyway. So you can give it a right, cosmetic right, little right. narrative thing as, as a judge and say, hey, yeah, you know, your ear is now a part, you know, stuck to your side of your nose. Um, <laughs> you know? Sure. And it's not like there aren't a million Googleable uh, mutations tables out there in the world. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, we just recently had my um, my characters in my old school essentials campaign uh, roll on that. And now our cleric of the God of the Dead now has detachable genitals. I, in fact, did not. <laughs> I did not put a, uh, a misfire in on that. Uh, so that's just going to have to be something that's left to left to the GM to figure out or the, the judge. It'll, or, or it'll be some fan created content yeah. because right. Goodman Games right. is very good at letting right. People right. create their own yeah. thing. Right. Well, maybe something on the uh, Goodman Games blog, a little entry there. Yeah, or, like or yeah. an entry in the Gong Farmer's Almanac. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> it is it is left very um, open, you know, in how it works. Like, I give the mm. amount of hit points or, or ability points that it'll restore. But then I have a thing where it says the process takes anywhere from minutes to hours, depending on the trauma suffered. Um, mm-hmm. So. Okay, cool, cool. 
Well, this has been awesome. I'm curious, Jason, is there anything else from the book that we haven't had a chance to chat about from a literary or gaming perspective that you want to talk about before we wrap this up? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it, that it, you know, has much uh, uh, impact anywhere. But I love the fact that they were using hot air balloons to to assault them. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. And I always had trouble thinking yeah. in my head, and I'm pretty sure that the intent is that it's hot air balloons. But in my head, yeah. I was seeing like blimps, you know, because yeah. yeah. they had some way to propel them. So I have like these little Zeppelin had, things like, going in my head. Right. And I love that how Gray, like, you know, was like, oh, I've seen these drawings. We just do it like this. And he's like, okay, we're making metal yeah. balloons first. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, you know, so the vacuum will make them float. And there's right? this and old like, Gygaxian lawyering going back and forth between uh, Gray and <laughs> yeah. the Jin, yeah, which yeah, exactly. is very much like the Gygaxian wish wording. Right, right. And then, you know, he gets like Rolf's is better at it, but then he still gets like a, you know, a 12 foot right. rudder dropped on. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a lot of fun there. I mean, it's, 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 it's that Gygaxian luring, but not like being a total, it's the you know, fun dick end about of it. it yeah, it's, it's the fun end of it. <laughs> right. Yes. <Yeah. laughs> right. It's the Saberhagian take on it, not the Elsbrig to Cambrian right. take on right. it. Right. Right, 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 right. Because Saber, you can tell it's very. I mean, I think he was a technical writer before he did this. He's very proficient and understands like the incorporation of technology, but he's right. not pedantic. Well, it's the not. Way that if I can quote can be. Gygax, it's not a barracks room rules lawyer uh, messing <laughs> with the game. You know, it's it's right. it's a, a negotiation. You know, right? Like what would be funny, yeah. fun, and funny here? Right. Totally. Cool. Well, Jason, what kind of projects are you working on that folks should know about? And when do, do you know when people will start to see the the Empire of the East materials being released? I don't know when they're coming out. I'm not privy to that information. Um, Goodman Games, that's all on them at this point. Um, so we can just file that under forthcoming. For file now. that under forthcoming. I mean, I would assume soon because I think the PDF went out to backers, if I'm not mistaken. Right, the backers all. Yeah. Um, I yeah. don't have a final PDF. I need to hit hit them up for that and say, hey, give me my final PDF. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so, I, yeah, I don't know that. Hopefully it's going to be really soon. I'm, I'm really pleased with the way it... Um, as far as what I'm working on now, um, we at Troll... I'm a staff writer for Troller Games, and we are wrapping up a million Kickstarters right now. And then we're gearing up to have hopefully a banner year ahead. We have a lot of really neat stuff in the pipeline. We're going to be doing a, a planar adventuring source book, which is going to create a multiverse for uh, the aired campaign setting there. Uh, that's nice. in the works. Because right. they have two settings, right? They have the uh, the one that uh, Davis worked like yeah, in well, or something it, like that. Uh, and... It's interesting because Inzea and aired are in a lot of ways the same world. Um, Inzea mm -hmm. is literally the underside of aired. So they're stacked ah, on okay. top of each other and there's crossovers. Nice. Like the Inzea is the name of a dragon who is a force of chaos and it, it would take too long to really go into the whole thing, but um, I, I, one of the reasons I write for Troll Lord is because I absolutely love their campaign stuff, and if anybody has a chance to check out the Codex of Aired, uh, absolutely mm -hmm. do it. It's completely rules-free. There's not a rule in the entire thing, but it's a campaign world with like 10,000 years of history, and you could easily use Dungeon Crawl Classics to run a game in it. It really, mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely worth it. So that's, that's going on with troll Lord. And then for my company, uh, we just released, uh, night shift veterans of the supernatural wars. We finished, we fulfilled the Kickstarter in July, June, June. 
Uh, we fulfilled the Kickstarter. And I've released uh, GM screen inserts uh, and POD GM screens for that. We just released our first adventure module for that called A Faustian Dilemma. Uh, and I'm working on the first Night Companion source book for that. And then I'm also working on my next core game for Elflare, which is going to be a Lovecraftian sword and sorcery game uh, called Wasted Lands, The Dreaming Age. Uh, which takes oh, nice. place a okay. thousand years after the old ones went to sleep, after the stars went wrong. And it's humanity mm-hmm. trying to rise up and carve its place in the world now that the old ones have left. So this could be one of these cycles in sort of like the Robert E. Howard. Sort like, of, but the, the, the shtick is, yeah. um, and, and I don't know if I have a mechanical way to do this or not, but uh, I'm going to try to make it come out at least in the text. The shtick is that you will be playing a sorceress named Isis or a warrior named Wotan. Or, you know, uh, a thief named... Lo- uh, you'll, so be you'll be playing the human versions of these figures that later in history will become to remembered as, as the gods of mythology. Okay, So that's, cool. that's the core idea behind it. So that's, that's what I'm right. working with right now. Cool, cool. And we'll be looking at that to be kickstarted in the next year? Or Hopefully, like yeah. That, or? Both, uh, the Night yeah, Companion yeah. will probably come first and followed by the, the uh, Wasted Lands game uh and waste the lands we use the same system as uh night shift okay very cool and jason where can people find you on the intar webs if they want to you know check out your stuff or get in touch with you my company's website is uh www.elflair.com okay. um, and you can find links to me from there i'm also i i have uh discussion groups for elflair games and amazing adventures so if you look up the elflair games discussion group or the amazing adventures discussion group there you go. And uh, Jason's blog, Wasted Lands, is it Wasted Lands Wasted Fantasy? Wastedlandsfantasy.blogspot.com. Right. Yeah. It has a lot of very good links for any of the people who are interested yeah. in, uh, you know, sort of sword and sorcery, pulp fiction, and how they relate to gaming, and some really interesting thoughts about design as well. So that, I re- uh, recommend that people check it out. I also have a company blog at elflaregames.blogspot. There you go. Check it out, people. Okay. Um, so, Jeff. Anything else that we need to uh, hit on before we um, uh, the next couple episodes, right? Yeah. So our next episode will be episode 86 on Lynn Carter's The Immortal of World's End. And episode 87 will be on Robert E. Howard's Conan the Usurper. And if you get a chance, please head on over to Appendix N Book Club slash. That's not right. Head on over to Geocities. Doc- is that where it is? No. Cloud um, <laughs> <laughs> plan. <laughs> um, head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. And that's where you can show us your support. Uh, we are very lucky to be able to chat with our patrons before these episodes. Uh, today, we got to chat with Gabriel Laycock, Adam Styers, Lucio Pimentel, Robbie, uh, Robbie Fioto, and Matt Richards. We had a really fun conversation with those folks. And also, we would love to give a quick shout out to a few of our other patrons. Uh, thank you to Noah Green, Adrian Romero, Dama Saklas, Eric Johnson, James Hansen, Andy Action, Thomas Edward, Sean Birch. Thank you so much for your support. We really appreciate it. And Ahoy, if people want to send us a message or look us up online, where can they do that? All right. Uh, the best way to get in touch with us is uh, either via email at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. If you do get a chance and like what we do, please do rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as iTunes. Uh, it does help people find us. 
And that's about yeah, it. Yeah, Jason, thank you so much for being on the show, man. It's an honor. Thanks for having me. And I'm really sorry that I forgot about you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like such an ass for that. For those listening who don't know what we're talking about, we were we were briefly stood up by Jason, but it's fine. He, he brought us roses. Um, <laughs> he, he serenaded us. Uh, the, tr- the truth, I was actually sitting in the woods with a rifle um, because they opened up Sunday hunting in Pennsylvania, and we oh, had, uh, there you go. We had one day to do it, so I was oh, out there, and I, and I just completely forgot. I was like, this is my one Sunday. And then I got yeah. home and saw an email from you, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm such an ass. <laughs> right. Right. Amazing. All right, well, that's our show. All right, see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>